Yeah, when you start a company in Estonia and you want to build this uh, self-service SMB business um, and you have 1.3 million people in the entire country, um, kind of going global comes pretty naturally because you don't have a home market. Uh, Do you want to be the leading CRM in Estonia? Uh, no, that, <laughs> that was never our goal. Hi, and welcome to the SaaS Revolution Show, brought to you by SaaS Talk. Irina Cimbazova here. I run our content marketing. On this week's episode, we're taking you back to the SaaS Talk 2018 scale stage for a panel discussion of what is arguably one of our favorite topics, European SaaS companies succeeding on a global stage. The panel brings together two regular SaaS Talk attendees and speakers, Martin Henk, co-founder of Pipedrive, and Christian Owens, founder and CEO of Paddle, for a chat about their experience starting up in Europe and then taking their business global. Interviewing them is Teddy Wardy, Managing Director of Insight Venture Partners. As you will hear, the two companies had a very different approach about going global. Pipedrive opened international offices early on, while Paddle kept a single base in Europe for quite a while. We've had the pleasure to observe closely both of their growth trajectories in the past few years. Supporting entrepreneurs like them and seeing them grow successfully is one of the chief reasons we started SaaS Talk over three years ago. Every story of success makes everything we do that much more meaningful. And Martin and Christian get into a lot of detail about aspects of going global as successfully as they have. You can hear advice on the timing of when to go global. The thing that often happens uh, in, I think, European software companies, especially venture-backed European software companies, is there is this excitement to expand to the US, often at the expense of the European business, however well it's doing. Um, and we made the very conscious decision that we wanted to build a significant and sort of scalable and sustainable, um, efficient sort of European business before we tried to replicate that in the US, rather than um, or inter- anywhere internationally, rather than sort of trying to build out the US and, or an, an, another market in parallel um, at the expense of uh, the traction that we'd already had in, in the home market. Strategies for deciding where to expand. Latin America, uh, especially Brazil, uh, has been huge for us, and we're really glad um, that we can manage to do that, um, mostly because people somehow loved Pipedrive, um, so we didn't do much um, didn't come naturally for us uh, as an Estonian company that kind of Brazil should be a target market, but uh, it just kind of got distraction and uh, started taking off. And um, that was kind of a big part of the strategy uh, early on, is to kind of see where uh, the customers are coming from and, uh, and then kind of do more in these markets. What are the strengths of being a European company? So when you grow up in Europe, uh, you understand pretty quickly that, you know, uh, just kind of two hours uh, flight any direction and uh, the world is completely different, uh, which might not be the case uh, if you grow up in the middle of the US. So uh, kind of being able to embrace that and, uh, and cater to the different uh, sorts of audiences, I think that is a kind of strength, especially when you're a small, uh, from a small country, um, that helps. One of the, the interesting conversations that I have that differs between talking to people in the US about it or talking to people in Europe about it is in Europe, people talk about continents and they talk about countries and in the US it's US and then international. The recent acquisition of Acro by Integrate 
was another great success story of the European SaaS ecosystem. We were especially happy to learn from Chris Wixon, their co-founder and CEO, that us, SaaS Talk, we had a big role to play in reaching that milestone. If you want to find your own path to success the way Pipedrive, Pado, and Acro have, you should join us at SaaS Talk 2019 this October in Dublin. Super early bird tickets are on sale now at sastalk.com. You will find the link in the description. Now on with the show. Hello, everyone. So today we're going to talk about building global businesses from Europe. How do you play to the strengths of the European company and how do you kind of manage the weaknesses? Um, so we have two companies here on stage today at a very different um, point in their journey of going global. And um, we'll have a bit of an interaction session where Martin's going to talk about what Pipedrive has done, uh, success and failures, and then uh, with Christian we're going to talk about his plans uh, of going global. So uh, with that, let's start with a of quick intros of what your companies do and you know, where have you, you know, where we place offices around the world and where are you in this journey of going global? Sure. So uh, I'm Martin. I'm one of the founders of Pipedrive. And Pipedrive makes software for salespeople. So if you're someone uh, that is selling something expensive that takes a long time to close, uh, then Pipedrive is a really good tool for you. Uh, we're eight years old. We have 75,000 customers all over the world uh, in 170 countries. So we uh, do know a little bit about globalization and uh, internet internationalization and stuff like that. Um, we started in Estonia, uh, and uh, the biggest offices are still in Estonia, but we also have offices in, uh, in New York, in London, in Lisbon, and now also in Prague. Uh, but uh, as you can see, we only have offices in kind of five, six countries. Uh, we have customers in 170. Um, so somehow we were able to get um, customers in, in very remote places from Estonia, like uh, in Brazil. Uh, without having anyone on the ground for, you know, um, for the last uh, seven years. Now we have one person in Brazil. Um. Uh, I'm Christian. I'm the founder of a company called Paddle. Um, we build uh, recurring billing infrastructure for other SaaS businesses. Um, and we're about to kind of go on this journey of kind of opening our first international office. We're about 140 people in London right now. Um, but I've always thought about scaling the business internationally. Um, and although we're all based in London, it's sort of about three or four percent of our revenue. So kind of we've always built kind of this international um, kind of go to market and, and sales team and sales strategy and um, kind of took the approach of um, sort of trying to build an international business before we built an international company. And I think sort of that's kind of similar. So Martin, when, when you started Pipedrive, was it always your intention to build a very global business, or do you kind of like just go where the customers took you? So, yeah, when you start a company in Estonia and you want to build this uh, self-service SMB business um, and you have 1.3 million people in the entire country, um, kind of going global comes pretty naturally because you don't have a home market. Uh, do you want to be the leading up. CRM in Estonia? Uh, no, that, that was never our goal. Uh, so the, the thing was, in English, since the start, anyone could, st uh, could sign up and uh, pay with a credit card uh, anywhere in the world. And our second customer was already from the US. 
So uh, the plan was all, always to kind of be global, be self-service, so that we could uh, enter markets without opening offices. Because the uh, traditional Estonian way was to build a company uh, for five years and then on the sixth year kind of go to Latvia. And uh, we were determined not to do that. And that was uh, that was one big goal. Uh, so eventually we started getting customers from Latvia as well, but uh, that wasn't uh, <laughs> that wasn't kind of part of the big strategy. So going global uh, and then making sure that we have the scale um, to sustain a kind of um, self-service SMB, that was, uh, that was the goal. And Christian, Pedal is quite a sizable company already, and, and many of your SaaS peers in Europe actually go global much earlier on. I've seen people you know, set up in the US with just like 20 employees in Europe. Has it been a conscious decision that you kind of wanted to stay in one location longer for certain advantages, or has it just been this flow of, of how we build the business? Um, I think the thing that often happens uh, in, I think, European software companies, especially venture-backed European software companies, is there is this excitement to expand to the US, often at the expense of the European business, however well it's doing. Um, and we made the very conscious decision that we wanted to build a significant and sort of scalable and sustainable, um, efficient sort of European business before we tried to replicate that in the US, rather than, um, or interna anywhere internationally, rather than sort of trying to build out the US and, or an, an, another market in parallel um, at the expense of uh, the traction that we'd already had in, in the home market. Well, that makes sense. I've definitely seen situations where when the founder moves back and forth between Europe and the US and always the office or the founder is, is not at is starting to deteriorate. So it, it makes sense to have the infrastructure in place. Um, I mean, we talk a lot about entering the US and of course North America is, is the largest software market in the world. But, um, you know, there's a lot of things out there in the world, you know, beyond the US. Um, Martin, you guys have a very global business when it comes to SaaS. You mentioned, you know, Brazil and, and countries like that. How do you think about the global markets? You know, what are the interesting areas of the world where, where you feel that Pipedrive can be a big success? I mean, yeah, Latin America, uh, especially Brazil, uh, has been huge for us, and we're really glad um, that we can manage to do that, um, mostly because people somehow loved Pipedrive. Um, so we didn't do much. Um, didn't come naturally for us uh, as an Estonian company that kind of Brazil should be a target market. But uh, we just kind of got distraction and uh, started taking off. And um, that was kind of a big part of the strategy uh, early on, is to kind of see where uh, the customers are coming from and, uh, and then kind of do more in these markets instead of kind of forcefully going into places that um, we didn't have traction in. And Brazil was especially interesting because uh, they started using the software but also kind of um, forcing us to localize. So uh, we had made the decision not to uh, translate Pipedrive into any other language. We had uh, done it before in, a, in another startup. We knew how much pain that was. Um, so we, uh, we were determined not to do that. But the Brazilians just kind of twisted our arm uh, until we gave up and said, okay, we're, we're going to translate this uh, thing. And the, the second language was uh, Brazilian Portuguese. And now we're glad uh, we did it because kind of, uh, once you do the second language, it's easier to add the third and the fourth. So now we have kind of 14 different languages. Um, but this kind of uh, first step didn't come uh, kind of us thinking, yeah, we should go to Brazil. It was more like them just uh, forcing us to uh, take this seriously. And kind of um, at some point we started doing uh, support in, in Portuguese and kind of, it, kind of the, the localization has gone deeper and deeper in some markets. That makes sense. And Christian, is it all about North America for Paddle or are you thinking about any other regions? 
No, so I think like one of the ways that we add value as a company is is sort of this inflection point when people start thinking themselves about selling into different markets. So a natural part of how we've thought about growing the business is um, kind of if we build expertise in in Europe, that naturally helps us sell that expertise to the US and, and, and then help them sell into Europe. So I think for us and kind of when we started the business, like this was my first like real company. I was 18 when I started Paddle um, and it was this process of we didn't really know anyone. We didn't know how to build a sales process. We didn't know any of these things. So naturally we would speak to anyone who was willing to speak to us. And naturally that tends to gravitate toward, as we're selling to software companies, tends to gravitate towards where the software companies are. Um, so we very quickly saw this very high concentration of customers in the US. Um, and then if we, as we've grown, it's, it's sort of been kind of following naturally these trends of where we're seeing kind of startup ecosystems and software companies springing up everywhere and um, sort of we've kind of not resisted that. We've tried to kind of be as accommodating to these customers in all these different geographies, be it from the point of view of um, kind of customer success and support teams and things like that and trying to support the markets, but also, like you mentioned, the, the localization of the product and improving that over time based on kind of how much customers sort of scream at us um, about it, it being a bad experience. There, there wouldn't be a European SaaS panel without mentioning GDPR. So we have an audience question of like, how do you deal with the German sensitivity on data privacy and other, other regulation? I mean, again, like there's challenging markets inside Europe as well, even you don't have to go that far. Yeah. How do you guys deal, deal with that? Well, I guess there's two ways to go about it. It's either to kind of hate it and not do anything about it or embrace it. And we decided to embrace it. So uh, we love GDPR. Uh, it's good for your kind of data security and privacy. Uh, we have a uh, kind of German data center, and uh, we have a pretty kind of sizable team uh, managing uh, data privacy at PyDrive. Um, and I think it's uh, like if it, if you do it well, it can be a really good competitive advantage. Um, so yeah, we just um, we're lucky to hire a guy uh, early on that kind of started taking it seriously, and then kind of uh, built up the processes inside the company. So we were kind of ready for it. But I can I can totally see how. Someone could be kind of blindsided by it and, uh, and frustrated. Yeah, we took the exact same approach of sort of when kind of regulation like it is is forced on you. I think the the way that we approach it is to say, okay, like how do we become the best in the world at kind of being compliant with that thing, um, so that company so it becomes one of the reasons that companies choose us. Yeah, so like being a European company, um, kind of. It's good to have some advantages over the U.S. counterparts. So, uh, for example, Salesforce just decided to shut down Salesforce IQ in Europe um, uh, once GDPR came out. So that was really good news for us. Uh, they decided to kind of um, just stand back, and then we decided to take advantage of it. So, so you're saying like you could use this advantage to win on the home turf, but if you think about like the more global markets, like what do you think are the biggest strengths and you know, the biggest weaknesses of being a European company in, in terms of talent or structure? Or... Well, I guess just the mindset of uh, understanding that there are so many different cultures and, uh, and kinds of uh, countries out there. So when you grow up in Europe, um, you understand pretty quickly that you know, uh, just kind of two hours uh, flight any direction and uh, the world is completely different, uh, which might not be the case uh, if you grow up in the middle of the U.S., so uh, kind of being able to embrace that and, uh, and cater to the different uh, sorts of audiences, I think that 
ease of strength, especially when you're a small, uh, from a small country, um, that helps. Yeah, I think one of the, the interesting conversations that I have that differs between talking to people in the US about it or talking to people in Europe about it is in Europe, people talk about continents and they talk about countries. And in the US, it's US and then international. It's sort of like, this is our home market and everything else. Where Europe kind of ends in London for a lot of US <laughs> best people. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm based in New York and I interact with a lot of other investors in the market. And so I keep hearing these things about, and these claims about Europeans. I wanted to get your thoughts on this. So one thing I keep hearing is like, Europeans can't sell. Like, Another one I've heard is that there's no SaaS XX in Europe. There's like great engineering talent, but there's no XX because there's no companies. What are your thoughts on this? Um, European people can sell. Yeah. <laughs> you sold something. <laughs> um, like we've been outbound, so we've been going for sort of just over six years. We've been outbound sales driven since day one. We have sort of 40 people in sales in London. We've tripled the business every single year. We didn't have a marketing team until 12 months ago. Like sort of we've still a very small amount of our business comes from inbound. And I think, um, I think the, the, the interesting perception of sort of, we have the same perception in the other direction of, of US salespeople, of there are lots of great kind of sales, sales talent in the US, but equally sort of there's lots of presentable sales talent in the US that isn't great. Um, whereas sort of here we have kind of sort of, I think a much, there is still a great pool of sales talent, but sort of there is still that same filtering that needs to happen, and it's obviously a s smaller kind of market. Um, so we've struggled with it, but kind of there's definitely salespeople in Europe. What do you think about the exec comment on like hiring experienced VPs of you know sales and product and people and marketing and so forth? Well, maybe that was true ten years ago. Uh, today, uh, it's it's a lot less true. I mean, yes, of course, you go to Silicon Valley, the concentration of uh, kind of SaaS, XX, obviously, is much, much higher. But at the same time, competition is also much higher. Um, so, uh, yeah, we've been able to hire great people um, in Europe. We do have a very kind of distributed team. So we, we do believe in offices, but we do have kind of um, uh, many of them, and we have XX in, in different offices. So kind of sometimes, yeah, you have to have um, a specific exec in the US or in London uh, versus, I don't know, Tallinn or Lisbon, uh, because there is a longer history in, uh, in certain areas. But overall, I, um, yeah, I definitely couldn't say that you, you can't build a business or hire execs in Europe. And that, yeah, that doesn't sound right. So, so what are the weaknesses of building a company from Europe? I mean, it sounds pretty great so far. So what are the kind of biggest things that you have to compensate for if you're competing against uh, competitors from North America? I think a while ago it was the fundraising question uh, of sort of is there access to capital sort of not at the early stage but sort of at the kind of more sort of series B, series C growth stage. Um, that isn't a problem anymore. Um, sort of uh, I think that one of the big things is actually just the perception of being a European software company especially if you are selling internationally into the US. Um, kind of when trust becomes such a big thing in, in both sort of both of our kind of businesses with dealing with people's data and us with dealing with people's money, um, I think actually the the hurdle that you have to jump over is the perception one of do I want to give all of this trust and data or whatever else to this small European software company I've never heard of. Um, but yeah, yeah, that 
can be a hurdle. And in our early days, uh, when we just had the European kind of entity, um, getting uh, U.S. companies to pay us uh, to this kind of strange company in Estonia, um, in this kind of strange currency that no one knew about, uh, that was called the euro. Um, so uh, that was a hurdle. So kind of going to the U.S., establishing, uh, kind of incorporating in the U.S. and kind of being able to take uh, payments into the uh, into the ink uh, in dollars, um, that definitely helped a lot. Um, kind of establishing trust. Uh, even kind of myself moving to California and picking up the phone, kind of um, talking to customers, even though I was still Estonian and even though I still had a thick accent, uh, just telling people that I'm based now in the Bay Area, everyone was kind of so much more welcoming. So that, um, and that kind of uh, brought up so much more trust from, uh, from the U.S. customers. So, um, yeah, if you take U.S. seriously, um, kind of having some people on the ground definitely uh, makes a big difference. So, so a lot of people say that, you know, if you're moving a company in like early to mid stage to a large new market, you kind of have to have a one of the founders or co-founders relocate. It, it, I mean, you've been to many many different markets with PipeDrive. Yeah, so we've done it in in only a number of places. Yeah. You also have a lot of co-founders. Yeah, we which helps. Yeah, we had the uh, yeah the benefit of having five founders, so we could kind of spread them around um, and kind of uh, not leaving uh, too many offices kind of without founders. Um, so U.S. was certainly one of these places where kind of, we uh, we actually went. So uh, I moved, uh, some other founders moved, uh, established a, uh, an office in California, which we later shut down. Uh, but but that was kind of an important step. Um, but in most markets, uh, we haven't done that. Kind of just like building an office. Probably the next one will have to be Germany, where we kind of need to start taking stuff more seriously. Kind of uh, besides the data center and uh, and uh, localization. But U.S. definitely was the one that kind of required some of us to move, uh, both for for customers but also for fundraising. Because especially kind of six, seven years ago, uh, getting kind of proper investment into an Estonian company wasn't really possible. Now you have yeah, Taxify, you kind know, of one billion valuation in an Estonian company. So um, things have changed a lot. Christian, what about you? Like now you're on this plan of building up the European business to, you know, quite a sizable scale and infrastructure and like like a real company, do you feel that that will help you avoid the fact that you have to, you know, move yourself to the U.S. or whatever market you want to go to, or I think that was, is it something you have to do? Yeah, I think that was sort of one of the reasons that um, that we kind of wanted to build this sort of substantial European side to the business was um, one of our biggest sort of concerns about doing this when we were 20 people or 30 people was, okay, if we take kind of one or two core team members out of that team how do you ensure that the culture maintains sort of the same and growing? How do you make sure that sort of all of these things that made that office or that company or sort of that team good remain true when sort of the one or two people who initially started that kind of are no longer there? Um, I think that you get this momentum when you have sort of more people in there that sort of the culture starts of growing and evolving on its own. Um, so actually removing some of the kind of original people from that um, sort of doesn't have such, such a significant impact. However, kind of, it's then the same story in kind of the U.S. or wherever you set up. Is like maybe it makes sense to do that. Maybe it makes sense for a founder to move um, so that you can kind of seed that culture with 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 um, kind of the same ideas and the, and the same sort of processes that, that have worked so well for us in in Europe. It's an obvious question on uh, which is a very relevant one. Like when you enter a new market. Like, how long do you have to actually, you know, give it before you, you 
declare failure, either due to high CAC or whatever reasons. I mean, you mentioned, Martin, that you went to California. You're no longer in California. So what, what, what do you think? Well, that wasn't about CAC. That was about communication. So uh, there's a 10-hour time difference between California and Estonia, so we couldn't really talk to each other, uh, which was kind of okay when we had kind of two, th uh, three people in California. Once we had 20, it became a really big issue. It's just kind of uh, the thing just wasn't working. So closing California down, opening up in New York, uh, kind of getting uh, three hours closer and having an overlap uh, in working hours, uh, that was mainly due to that. Um, kind of pulling back from a market, uh, well, yeah, we haven't really done that. <laughs> so, uh, but we also kind of don't enter markets with kind of hiring 20 people uh, uh, and then getting kind of people to work and then sell in a market uh, that we kind of would have someone to pull back from. So, uh, yeah, don't have that experience yet. Yeah. And talking about, like, the distribution of functions in the business, Christian, I mean, you're in a lucky position right now, but everything's, everyone's basically in the same office, which is, of course, great. Um, Martin, how do you think about um, distributing functions like engineering, product, marketing, you know, between offices? Is it, is it impossible, or should you just try to keep everything except for sales and marketing in, in one office and have these regional sales hubs, or...? How do you think about um, actually distributing the functions? I mean, nothing is impossible, but some things are just uh, ridiculously difficult. Uh, for example, having this uh, marketing team split between New York and Tallinn, uh, even with the, uh, the slightly smaller time difference of seven hours, uh, was still kind of uh, really, really difficult. Uh, doing the same thing between uh, Tallinn and London, uh, where you only have two hours difference, was much, much easier. So uh, the same thing with our engineering and product. So our engineering and product is now spread between uh, kind of four different offices, but they're all kind of somewhat in the same time zone, kind of only two hours different. So uh, we have a major hub in Lisbon now, uh, and uh, the communication with Tallinn is, is working. I, it's not perfect, but it's much better than kind of having a seven-hour or ten-hour ten difference. So um, this needs to be taken seriously. You need to kind of really uh, consider um, kind of opening up the second office or the third office, uh, it is kind of always much bigger than you, uh, than you realize, kind of how, how many things change, how you need to start taking uh, communication much more uh, seriously and kind of proactively thinking about kind of uh, spreading information because it doesn't spread uh, on its own anymore. Uh, you have kind of uh, no kind of kitchen conversations or kind of uh, water cooler uh, discussions about something. Um, so. Um, much more kind of proactive approach to communication, especially. Sounds like time zones are your biggest enemy. When it comes they to are, yeah. I, I hate time zones. Yeah. <laughs> it's just uh, on many levels, on an engineering level, but also in a, in a communication sense, kind of time zones are a big hassle. Christian, as you're thinking of, of, of going global, what are your biggest fears or considerations as you're planning? Um, I think it's the time, the time zone communication, collaboration aspect of things. Um, and sort of, I think I, one of the arguments I would say, I guess, for kind of doing this earlier in the life cycle of a company is you get less ingrained processes. You get less ingrained sort of things around of your company. Exactly, ways of doing things internally around kind of the culture around meetings, about sort of how you plan things, um, the sort of the idea of like kitchen conversations and things like that, uh, sort of. Doing it earlier obviously gives you more opportunities to ingrain that in the culture of the organization um, as opposed to us now where I'm sort of it's quite difficult to change something on a 
on a 140 people level in terms of how we communicate with each other and talk to each other when it's the first time that we will have ever done it. So I think that's my biggest sort of fear is how do we integrate that. And, and Martin, you've had the luxury of actually doing this and, and by going globally, of course, made a lot of mistakes uh, that you've still survived. What, what, what would be the, you know, you could change one thing and go back and change, do something differently. What would it be? And then also, based on that, any, any tips for Christian on the key things to, to avoid? So don't open California. Yeah. No, 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 it, it had to be done. At that moment, it was, it was really uh, critical to kind of have that office there. Um, so I wouldn't say that, kind of, don't do it. Like we, uh, we had to go through that step. Um, because you know, many good things grew, grew up from uh, from having that office, kind of, uh, investors and connections, and kind of like many good things happen. Um, so, like changing your mind is is also a good thing. So, like uh, we had to do that, but then also had to open New York and then make these changes, um, open up London at some point. So, it's really difficult to kind of. I know it sounds stupid. Of course, we made a lot of mistakes, but. Um, Kind of as time goes by, you see kind of all of the good things that kind of emerge from it, and kind of the learning. Them institutionally. Yeah, so it's really difficult to kind of, kind of, put the finger on one kind of big mistake that we did to kind of you should all avoid. Um, yeah. Oh, any any tips to <laughs> Christian to increase his odds of success? Um, no pressure. Yeah, I mean, it's just kind of. Uh, Think ahead and kind of try to be more proactive about kind of changing these things uh, because kind of none of the stuff will happen on its own. Uh, as you said, kind of time zones, communication, all of that stuff, uh, it will change in a major way. Uh, make sure that you have kind of um, someone to kind of see the culture in the new offices. Um, we've done it in, in both ways. In some offices, we had uh, old timers kind of uh, relocate and start up the office, and it really helped with kind of. Uh, kind of uh, growing the culture in the right way uh, or kind of in a similar way. So obviously all of the offices are different, but in some offices um, you can feel more of that kind of um, similarity between the, uh, the original offices. So um, yeah, maybe that, that's one of the things I would do, uh, kind of make sure that in every single office you have some old timers uh, relocate and kind of start up the, the culture because it just makes uh, some things much easier. Maybe we'll revisit this in a year or two and see how, how it actually went. Yeah. All right, um, Christian, Martin, thank you so much for taking the time. It's been very valuable. And thank you everyone for listening. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of the SaaS Revolution Show and you've picked up valuable lessons from Martin and Christian. They have both been on the podcast previously, and I encourage you to revisit the conversations Alex had with them, as there is much more to learn from each. We will link the two episodes in the description. Thanks for listening. See you next time.